Happy Friday, everybody. It's the Informations 411, your weekly podcast from theinformation.com, a news site covering the tech industry and all other industries that are being transformed by the rapidly evolving world of technology. My name is Tom Dotan. I'm the host of the show uh, most of the time. Uh, we have other people sub in, but uh, usually it's me. And I'm also a reporter at The Information. So we've got a different episode for you this week. Normally, uh, I talk to, or someone else does, uh, talks to a couple of reporters who wrote some of the big stories we wrote during the week, and we give a behind-the-scenes look on how it was put together and other elements that give you a deeper understanding of what we wrote about. This week, though, something very different. Uh, we have two segments. And first off, it is going to be Corey Weinberg, one of our reporters, who's talking to Connor Doherty, a reporter at The New York Times, who recently wrote a book about the housing crisis in California and why this has been such an unsolvable problem and it is exacerbated so much by the laws and personalities and just general nature of California. Uh, and the reason we're having this on the show, one, because Connor, uh, you know, is a friend of the show and uh, we, we love to support other people who do great work. But there's a lot about technology in his book that really explains why Silicon Valley uh, and the rise of the tech industry has been both a major cause of the housing pr uh, problem, but also, uh, you know, the people within the tech industry who feel like they're trying to solve it. Uh, Corey writes a lot about this t uh, topic, and so he and Connor had an excellent and long conversation about uh, about his book, which, by the way, is called Golden Gate. Uh, so that's the first segment of the show. And then second off, we have Jessica interviewing Robin Murdoch of Accenture, uh, and that conversation was part of our sponsored partnership with the firm. Uh, we are working with Accenture on events in London and Japan in the coming months. Stay tuned for more details. Uh, and this conversation with Robin is about their data and studies about autonomous vehicles and trends in the autonomous driving world. And how consumers would uh, react to various technologies. So it's a different show, but it's still a very good one. Uh, that's a long intro. Let me just get now to the first off conversation with Connor and Corey. We have in uh, in the house Connor Doherty, a reporter for the New York Times. Say hi, Connor. Hi. Uh, and Connor just uh, came out with a book this week that we thought was a particularly important topic for uh, for our audience to to kind of grapple with, and that's about the state of Bay Area housing. Connor's book is called Golden Gates. Does it have a subtitle? Fighting for Housing in America. Okay, it's Fighting for Housing in America, all of America. Well, and we're we're supposed to be learning about sort of uh, sort of an American housing fight through the lens of Cal sort of understanding California. Yeah, and uh, you know, as I'm sure your listeners know, any place that there's a large tech uh, cluster or even really a knowledge cluster, even finance. There is a housing problem. I mean, just go down the list, right? right. Seattle, Portland, Austin, Minneapolis. New York, I mean, just pick it. And this problem, though not as bad as the Bay Area, is there. And I actually did travel a lot for the book. I uh, went to Minneapolis, went to Vancouver. I went to a bunch of different places, uh, Boston. And I ended up leaving a lot of that stuff out. And the reason was this is ultimately a local problem. It's a local problem with national implications. And so when you start asking the question, how do I solve this? Where can I make a difference? Where can tech companies or whoever uh, engage their side of this debate? It turns out that the local legislators right. is, is a better place. Right. And I think the reason why I think your book adds to 
and I finished this, finished it last weekend, you know, sort of devoured it. Uh, this is a subject I'm super interested in. I've reported on it myself before, but it provides sort of a, 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 a sort of knitting together of a bunch of different policy threads over mostly the last half century that I think you sort of Bay Area people, particularly those with money and are trying to think about how to influence policy, should understand it and, and, and should know it. Um, totally. Well, you know, it's funny. The whole, your readers will, or your listeners will like this story. The whole book started when I was, I used to cover Google for a brief few, about 18 months for the New York Times. And I was uh, talking, I was interviewing Jeremy Stoppelman about his favorite subject, which CEO is how of much Yelp. he, yes, Jeremy Stoppelman, the subject, CEO of Yelp. I was interviewing him about his favorite subject, which is how much he hates Google. Mm-hmm. And, um, then at the end of the interview, I just kind of said, oh, hey, I heard you're super into housing stuff, which is a subject I'm very interested in. The Bay is in such a bad spot. And he goes, yeah, I actually gave money to this woman, Sonia Trouse. She runs this group called BARF. And I thought, this is kind of odd. I mean, if you've met Jeremy, he's not kind of a kooky, he's a pretty serious guy. He doesn't, he's not talking about singularity and things mm-hmm. like that. You know what I mean? He's, he's a pretty, kind of just comes off like a typical CEO. And just the idea that a publicly, the CEO of a publicly traded company would be making his first foray into local politics through a group called BARF. I mean, this is a guy with hundreds of millions of dollars. It just seemed like this is weird, for one. And for two, this just shows you how desperate this situation is, desperate for a new kind of conversation, a new kind of political kind of constituency. And so I actually, actually this, the, the whole story, to some extent, originates with tech, I mean, in the sense that they were the ones who really accelerated this political movement. Right. And really, the the central thread of the book is, you know, sort of about the rise of a political movement and sort of the struggle to maintain it and sort of attract donors and, and create like a real infrastructure around it. But, but we should probably back up and sort of uh, understand sort of why that political movement was sort of necessary in the first place. Like... Uh, you write a lot about history in this book. Um, you write a little bit about sort of the 1960s post-war growth period in California. Uh, Pat Brown was was governor. Uh, and there's this great quote I remember about sort of how when they were trying to create and fund a system of dams in California to, like, grow the water supply, Pat Brown said, of course, like, why wouldn't we invest in something that would help grow the state? You know, that would be – that would create enough water – for more people to live in California. How did we get to a point in the 21st century where that same mindset isn't taken to housing? So I think what happened is in the Bay Area and a lot of other places, there was a big kind of pivotal event in the Bay Area in the 50s and 60s called the Freeway Revolts. And they actually spread to Seattle and all these other places where large tech industries uh, have congregated. And I mean, at that time, developers were doing crazy stuff. They were going to fill in the San Francisco Bay uh, they were um, Geary Boulevard, which, you know, it's just a kind of like it looks like a giant freeway in the middle mm-hmm. of the city. Um, and they did build a giant freeway in front of the ferry building in San Francisco, although the earthquake knocked it down. Right. And so uh, and, and so there was all these big fights over what were genuinely bad projects. And then they backlashed and they backlashed, in my estimation, a little too much because it's now impossible to build anything. And I think what we kind of fast forward. So. By the 70s, people realized this is a big problem. There's multiple books, um, certainly a lot of academic papers about California and other kind of prosperous places 
um, Seattle, again, these kinds of tech hubs are starting to have a housing problem. It wasn't like that bad yet. So it's, it's right. kind of like, oh, it's sort of annoying that it costs a lot to live here, but I'll deal with it. And what the, it's fascinating to me, it's fascinating to me when people start recognizing a problem, how much they can anticipate about it. Sometimes people are so right about things. Mm. This guy, this one guy wrote a book in the 70s where he says, this is going to be an almost impossible problem to solve because people, the constituency of people who you need to fight for more housing is people who don't live somewhere yet. Right. Which is this, just think about that. It's like this crazy puzzle. So when I met Jeremy in that kind of fateful interview now, yeah. he was fighting, he was funding someone who was trying, this woman, Sonia Trouss, who's this insane character. She's a high school teacher who, um, you know, shows up to city council meetings in um, leggings and cowboy boots and kind of berates everyone and says, you guys have a housing problem, you know, and gives this public comment one time and people started commenting on her leggings and she, these leggings are sweet. You know, it's like these raucous scenes at these city council meetings and it was like, this is kind of this person trying to, and it would be, it's not surprising that it would be kind of a crazy person trying to do something that had never been done before because who else would try that? Right. Typically, the people that were, you know, sort of speaking uh, out at, at city council meetings or board of supervisor meetings were people who worked directly for real estate developers or property developers, you know, were the consultants, you know, that were trying to get a project forward or the neighbors that were, you know, trying to get a project blocked. Totally. And it's always, you know, it's always this like a developer is like, you should build this. It's so easy to dismiss them. Mm -hmm. And once normal people start showing up to these meetings, this helps create this thing. And by the way, I mean, other tech companies have really like layered onto this. I mean, Stripe's first ever corporate donation was to this group, California Yimby. Uh, California Yimby is run by a guy named Brian Hanlon, who, when I first met him, was working a desk job at the U.S. Forest Service, kind of showing up to meetings with Sonia. So it's, it's been amazing to me to see how, you know, the, the accelerant of tech money has, has kind of propelled this right. local movement. Right. You don't actually see the big companies getting into this, though. I mean, although they've started to. Facebook, Google, Apple have all right. uh, pledged. But they don't really go mix it up. And local in politics. In the politics. They're giving Google, Apple, Facebook, they've all given money essentially to, you know, jumpstart affordable housing construction or you know, sort of gifts that are broadly They're um, safe. Safe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I guess my question about this book, because we're, we're now at, we, you traced the history and it's an agonizing history of, of sort of understanding why we have such an affordability crisis in California. And, you know, you really lay it out, I think, as sort of a really a policy choice, you know, that we've made sort of federally, statewide and, and locally. Um, it, yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, housing is this, a lot of people don't like this, but housing is a, a heavily government regulated industry. You know, I mean, if you think about it, the number of times businesses either don't even know if they're breaking the law or, or just, you know, or do break the law or get caught for breaking the law and just keep breaking the law. You know, you can't just go build like a building randomly in the middle of somewhere. There's no like hacking your way out of this crisis. You know, there's no, there's no, there are some things you can do with tech, which we can talk about in a second. You know, there's modular housing. There's been a ton of, you've obviously led everybody on writing about this. Um, and of course, some of the potential pitfalls of this, Sure, but, um, 
you know, this is a problem that, yes, it's political choice and also it's a choice that I just don't see a way out of it mm. other than like just kind of straight up getting interested in local politics. And that's really annoying mm. to people who try to have like very large visions for things. Right. right. But, you know, when you if you think about what happened in America, we our housing policy, essentially where, how and at what cost we build shelter is by and large determined by like a million little city councils. I mean, there are obviously large federal programs that fund mm-hmm. things and whatnot. But, you know, a lot of the like real action on how do we solve pro- housing problems in America is at this hyper local level. And I think it makes it kind of a, you know, a, a vexing problem for right. people. And I think the sort of right in your reporting and writing about the rise of the Yimby movement, kind of this broad you know, those people that really couldn't be organized before because they didn't exist. You know, there is now particularly grown out of San Francisco, a young renter, you know, a lot of them work in tech, you know, that are organized or influencing state legislators like Scott Wiener, you know, as he kind of pushes or at least giving him cover, you know, as he tries to push for state legislation that would upzone cities um, or at least parts of cities. But I, I kind of walked away from the book wondering, is this a story about how this movement is struggling? Like, wh- like where are we today? Because we, you know, Sonia Trost, the woman, you know, you, you, you cover the fact that she lost her supervisor race. You, you write a lot about Senator, State Senator Scott Wiener and his bill, you know, continues to be shot down on, on, on the state side. So... Should I walk away from the book being like kind of pessimistic about this? No, you should be moment? totally optimistic. And the reason you should be optimistic, though this doesn't sound very optimistic, <laughs> is that we're talking about it. So every major uh, Democratic presidential candidate has released a housing plan that appears to have never happened before. Um, the housing plans all have, I mean, they vary in form, but they all have a decent zoning component. So that's, you know, whether or not that's as radical as SB 50, obviously it's not, but they're all saying this is a problem, that we don't build enough housing is a problem. So I think that, um, you know, I think that where we are is the conversation has been opened. I mean, I think I, you know, not to spoil it, but I close the book with, you know, here's this person who, kind of Sonia kind of kicked the door open and whether or not she'll be the one to go through, Mm. you know, I mean, and you see this not to, you know, not to play to your audience too much, but there, the tech history is littered with first movers who did not become the, um, the predominant kind of platform or what have you, you know, MySpace, Facebook, whatever. right? Right. And you see the same in politics. There's all sorts of examples of some person coming along really you know, really firing everything up, being a little unpalatable, and then and then other people adopting their best ideas. If Bernie Sanders, just to continue the analogy, if he is never elected president, people will still be for history books talking about him forever as if here was this guy who really moved, you know, even, even you know, I, I mean, maybe I shouldn't talk about that when it looks like he could be a Democratic presidential nominee. Right. But I'm just saying there's a super long history of the person who kicked open the door not being the person who walks through. And I think that this story is about, you know, this issue coming on the radar and the people who kind of brought it out. 
I should also say there's a lot of other like really rich stories in this book. Um, you know, there's this nun, Sister Christina, and she's like this multi-millionaire investor who's got this weird morality in how she invests in, not, not weird, but she goes and buys buildings before hedge funds investors can mm. get to them. And mm. she's got this thou shalt not evict edict that right. she follows. And there's all these characters and they're all, they're all a little out there trying right. to solve this problem in the way they think they, it should be solved. Now, the I'm curious, you know, I read this book right after reading Anna Wiener's Uncanny Valley, um, what, you know, her memoir about working at GitHub and working in the tech industry. There's a, there's a very brief thread in that book where she describes sort of technologists and entrepreneurs' interest in city building, Robert Moses, um, building cities from scratch in special economic zones. That has been well-documented, uh, you know, a well-documented trend in the tech industry. Is that a, what did you, did you walk away from reporting on the messiness of California housing, thinking we need more entrepreneurs, thinking about um, fresh starts in this way, or or is that, a, or did you walk away from, with that, from thinking that this approach is is uh, un, you know not well founded? I well, I can tell you my people should experiment with all sorts of things if they want to put up that kind of capital and build a house like in the middle of the. De I mean, where are you going to build that city in the desert? I mean, where, where is that going to be? Right. Who's going to pay for the infrastructure there? All so there are these very practical questions. I should say though that fundamentally the reason I don't believe in that vision, but I may turn out to be wrong, is that it kind of leads to this question, do the companies make the city or do the city make the companies? And I think that these big, complicated metro areas are what give rise to these companies, and if you divorce them from it, they will no longer be successful. You know, one of the things I've been saying in a lot of interviews is, People often portray, whether it's in Seattle or San Francisco, the tech world as this kind of outside force. I mean, I'm not saying everybody does that, but you'll hear this. Oh, they're, you know, they're coming with their buses and they're these big companies and Mark Zuckerberg moved here from Harvard or whatever, right? Yeah. But the tech industry is not some outside force. It is a creation of this region. It is a result of you know, more than a century of investment in uh, you know, universities like Stanford and Berkeley, it is the result, you know, John Markoff, my co former colleague at the New York Times, wrote this great book about how you cannot divorce the internet from uh, kind of the counterculture. There was this symbiosis where kind of the 60s counterculture meshed with the kind of computer uh, research that was being done at Stanford to create the modern internet. So I think that this place, and, or, or in other places, Seattle, whatever, I think those places are so fundamental to who those companies are, and um, and 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 I think that if you went and built a you know regulation-free city or whatever, you know, Y Combinator or somebody is thinking about, I just I don't I don't think it would work. I think in this case, the friction makes the company, not the lack of it. And last question: What's what's the way forward? I, I mean, what are the? This is not a solutions. But, you know, you don't have like a chapter at the end that says, here's the way forward for housing. You know, you're, you're kind of looking at it through a reporter's lens, I think, and, and trying to I think you are you, in the book. You definitely make calls. You definitely are kind of putting your 
neck on the line in terms of what sort of policy, what the policy ramifications were of certain decisions over the years and maybe what some ways forward might be. But you, you, I, I wanted like a clearer answer almost. And, and I'm curious if... if yeah, well, so yeah. if you read, obviously you've read a lot of policy books. And if you read a policy book, they have a very set structure. They introduce a problem. They kind of come up with some token anecdotes. And then they end with a, you know, conclusion solutions kind of page. I try to invert that structure for this book. I sort of said, what are the solutions people are pursuing? And how can we see the incredibly complicated stories of people trying to, you know, in the pitfalls they run into and the opposition they have in actually pursuing these solutions. Uh, you know, whether it's Sonia trying to create a constituency of renters who are trying to push for more housing, whether it's Sister Christina trying to raise money to buy um, apartments before investors can get to them, whether it's this 15-year-old girl who I, you know, followed through this whole, you know, odyssey of her trying to fight a landlord over an $800 rent increase. These are people going after these problems in the way they think. And, 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 and as you see them sometimes succeed, sometimes fail, you get a sense of what the challenges are. What's the way forward? There's no real way forward other than building a lot more housing and coming up with more robust subsidization programs for people who cannot afford it. Um, the, as currently constructed, people who work in the cafeterias at Google are not gonna be able to live anywhere near Google. Um, and so Google can do like one of two things. They can raise their wages by like 10 times uh, or um, they can get politically active in, you know, trying to rectify that by pushing for more housing. Now they've started to do that. Um, there's just kind of broad analogy in a weird way. There's been a lot of discussion about, you know, over the past however many years about tech moving out of the box of the iPhone or the computer or whatever into the real world with Uber and all these things. And... I think this is kind of this sort of a similar thing where, you know, you go back and you look at GM or any of these companies, they had, you know, very robust relationships and, you know, and political involvement with the communities that they were based in and workforce training, all workforce housing, all these things, right? And I think that part of the industry growing up and kind of becoming the true industrial powerhouse of the age we live in is going to be them adopting a similar role. And that'll be messy and people will be mad about it. And, you know, all there'll be fights and all these things. But ultimately, that's it's kind of that's kind of what has to happen. Yeah. Well, Connor, thanks for being here. That's Connor Doherty. He's the author of Golden Gates and it's out now. It's a it's a tech book without, uh, you know, it's, it's a subtle, subtle tech business book, even though it's not advertising itself as such. Thanks, Connor. Thank you. Jessica Lesson here with the information, and I'm sitting in San Francisco with Robin Murdoch of Accenture. Robin is Global Managing Director of Software and Platforms at Accenture, uh, one of the 13 industry groups overseeing all leading platform companies, which we, we know is a broad uh, purview in today's day and age. Robin, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. So Accenture has some new ride-sharing research that's out. Tell us what you found. Yeah, so we surveyed um, a number of ride-sharing users here in here in the U.S. and um, 
the, the headline really is that people love ride-sharing services, but the brand commitment is not really there. People are really switching between the different services. Then with my business reporter hat on, I, I see that uh, this is to perhaps explain for some of the challenges Uber and Lyft are still facing here. Um, what did your research show in terms of trajectory, right? Yeah. Is, is it tilting one way versus tilting the other yeah. way? Yeah, I think I think so. So two two key things. Certainly in the near term, people are really satisfied, and that's showing up in the fact that people are planning on maintaining or increasing their spend. So the vast majority of people are planning on um, maintaining or increasing spend on ride sharing over the next year. Um, but interestingly, as you look to look to sort of over the next decade, two thirds of people said that they'd consider giving up their car. Mm. And the vast majority of people we spoke to did actually own or lease a car. So certainly from an outlook perspective, you know, people love ride, ride hailing services and um, you know, would consider over the longer term um, switching, switching from owning a car. Well, that's fascinating. I remember, I mean, you've seen companies like Uber and Lyft and many others say, our, our target market is car ownership, right? It's not the taxi industry or something like that. So you're, you're seeing that consumers are, th there's some, some evidence that that may be possible, but not there yet, is that? Yeah, yeah, no, I think, mm -hmm. I think, I think that's fair. I mean, so the, the people we spoke to, the vast majority of them do still own cars. They're, it's something that we can probably expect to see over the coming few years, but, but in the near term, lots more usage of, of ride hailing. What about um, micro-mobility and scooters? What did your research dig yeah, up on that? Yeah, so, so we, we asked people if they used um, uh, different, different adjacent services, and actually people, people surprisingly said that they weren't using as many adjacent services. Um, they're sticking to the one thing that they're using. So we found about 40% of people were using adjacent services, like scooters, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So certainly that's an opportunity. What else is adjacent? So scooters, or yeah, there, so, what else would fall So there's that? a whole bunch of things. There's package delivery, there's ah. uh, the likes of Uber Eats, food delivery. Um, so people were really, really focused on the, the main ride-sharing services themselves. That's fascinating. Also, kind of baked into the business expectations of of these companies is sort of um, the the platform take on Amazon, you know. Uh, and while we've seen, I think, uh, in food delivery and Uber in particular, a lot of growth, um, just a brutal market, I think, in terms of the competitive economics. And um, be interesting to see, yeah, if if how consumers feel given there is still a lot of competition and a yeah. lot of choice. Yeah. Um, and certainly if you look in the if you look in the US, those adjacent services are very attached to kind of the the, the original service of, of ride hailing. Actually if you look outside the US, like into Southeast Asia, um, Grab for instance, mm -hmm. it's getting into the payment space. Mm -hmm. Or if you look at like a Diddy in 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 China, you see that them sort of expanding more vertically into multiple parts of, of the ride-sharing service, so partnering with electric vehicle companies, um, charging infrastructure, etc. So, so you know, around the world, there are different approaches to really expand from just core ride-hailing. Do you think that geographically we'll see more convergence? Uh, I mean, I, I think you mentioned autonomous. We have Uber, and that uh, is still investing heavily in that. I'm, not sure with what sign of traction yet, but or, or 
with your global perspective, you think the markets will keep their distinctiveness? Yeah, look, everyone is trying. Everyone is looking at these these new futuristic services like autonomous vehicles. You know, at CES this year, um, there was lots of talk about air taxis. Mm. And there was a mock-up of a Hyundai and Uber air taxi. So, you know, certainly leaning into the future, there is this promise of you know, autonomous vehicles. And obviously, autonomous vehicles in the air, um, on land. Um, but that you know that that is that is uncertain as to when that will really kick in. What does get interesting though, when you start to look to that future position, is the economics potentially change mm. dramatically. So you move from a very opex-intensive ride-hailing service to one where, well, if you got autonomous vehicles it's much more capex intensive mm. so you've got that interesting interesting change in sort of financial position that you might see in in ride hailing but it's uncertain as to when that's actually going to kick in do you think the public perhaps the press are over or under optimistic on um just the timelines for autonomous yeah yeah i mean you hear very different 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 things from from different people um there's one interesting school of thought that actually even though it sounds very jetsony air taxis are an easier autonomous solution mm. than than you know traditional autonomous vehicle cars there's more air than road right, space right, right? They're, they're actually the, thinking the, that through. the problem areas that that you need to overcome they're actually less from an air taxi mm. perspective even though it's so futuristic we actually asked consumers if they were interested in in an air taxi service uh, and and about 40% of people actually said they would consider it. But they were thinking of it more in the sort of traditional sense. So they were saying, you know, it'd be great to get to the airport mm. by, by an air taxi service or, or get a tour of a city from an air taxi service. So it was more, it was more that versus traditionally sort of knocking out your normal ride-hailing service. Yeah. I'm fa- I always think that uh, Sebastian Thrun, who was basically one of the godfathers of autonomous vehicles at Google, is now put all his eggs in the uh, Kitty Hawk uh, um, vertical takeoff and landing bucket. So I think, yeah, it's easy to forget uh, the air, but we shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think Hyundai, Hyundai and Uber at CES, there was also um, Toyota announced um, a $400 million investment in JB Aviation. So you're certainly seeing the vehicle manufacturers looking at this space with, with real interest. Mm. I, I always wonder if my kids are going to be getting their driver's license. They're three. So, you know, driver's license, pilot's license, whatever it's going to be in the, the next generation. Um, wonderful. Well, Robin, to wrap up, what, what else did the, the research show that jumped out at you? Yeah, I think the, the, the flip side to all of this is just brand commitment, mm-hmm. that um, a significant amount of people are switching between the brands. Um, we found over half people are switching between the brands. So how do you really maintain that brand loyalty? Um, and it's addressing all of the all of the issues that consumers have in the whole whole riding experience. Um, and that also includes trust, maintaining mm-hmm. users' trust, maintaining safety. Those are absolutely critical to to users. So so while there's great potential in ride hailing from people giving up their cars to spending more money, um, brand commitment certainly is something that's remaining elusive. Do you do you feel like the market share picture, and it's such a fascinating industry because it's global and, and complicated, but do you think it's pretty entrenched, or does that tell you you think there could be room for very wild swings? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a market that just continues to evolve in, in almost every region. Um, and as you look at sort of the promise of autonomous vehicles, etc., yeah, it's potential that it will get disrupted again. So, so it's not it's not stable. But certainly, it's the case that in a given region, there are one or two major players that are dominant. Yeah. 
Well, it's, we've been covering it since its infancy, and it's great to um, have that context or the research of what we can expect in the years ahead. Um, thank you so much, Robin, for joining us. Thanks.